0: Welcome to the Green Majority, which is Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto or on a much-beloved Radio Syndicate partner, a community station around the country, somewhere in the country. Tell me where it is. Or on a podcast platform where you might listen to this. And I'm David Hostetter.
1: I'm Stephen Hostetter.
2: And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks for tuning in with us this
0: week. And uh, we're gonna do some a cl- uh, bunch of climate environmental news, industry news. Industry I'm an industry analyst now. Oh wow! And uh, so then Stefan's gonna interview Dylan Penner from Council of Canadians about their campaign to flood the government with petition papers. Um, yes. Nice. Sure. <laughs> we'll put it like <laughs> their that.
1: Their week of action starting next month, next week.
0: Week of action. Yeah. But first, uh, Stefan wanted to say something about how Justin Trudeau or someone or God help us, someone in the government could convince Stefan Hostetter that we're going to do something here?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's basically it. Yeah. Mm. As, as you helpfully uh, preambled. <laughs> the A question I've been having for myself and sort of mulling around in my brain has been, you know, what would it take for the federal government or a federal government to... Convince me or to start feeling like we are actually getting to the level of ambition that is necessary to really hit Honestly, even our 2030 targets, let alone the actual targets we should be hitting which are much more uh, Robust than the ones we currently have, you know And there was an article I know that came out a couple days a report the, the government report came out a couple of days ago that actually indicated that already we are not yet on on path to hit our 2030 targets, you know, and and so there's already a fair amount to be done, and that's a, it's an, that was a report that came out, you know, internally a couple days ago, and there's a gold mail article that was sort of covering it recently, and so what I've come to a little bit is that like it really feels like the government is pretty much focusing on one or two major avenues, you know, they're really focusing on either just directly investing in things that they have control over, you know, giving money to different other, you know, other government agencies, you know, whether it's transit or other things like that, or, or maybe it's retrofits so that it's giving directly to individuals, or they're giving, um, money to businesses. And, you know, the amount of money that different types of clean tech accelerators have across this country, you know, is, again, I'm not gonna say they shouldn't have it. We need as much investment as we can in all forms, but there's a specific, you know, fetish, fetishization, I don't know why I chose that word, of, of private business and of, of private business uh, and of money coming into and going into businesses to solve this problem, and that I think is leaving behind a whole range of other solutions that I think would, to me at least, begin indicating that we are really accepting a full sector or full organi- full country a- attempt at doing this, and what got me thinking about this really was. You know, what would be the things that we could invest in right now that would begin to make us feel like th- we are doing things? And the first thing I thought of was a national bus service. You know, we've talked about this before. Uh, you know, ATU Canada, the Amalgamated Transit Union. They have a plan and they have a process that they want to create a national bus service. And that's something that people would see everywhere, right? It could become a galvanizing force. Like, even if you throw back to our conversation with Seth Klein about government actions that feel like they're embracing people and bring people along with them, that's the kind of thing that you could start seeing yourself being a part of in that work. And then if you look at, you know, the the postal workers union has the delivering community power plan, which once again, you know, it, these are robust plans that have details in them that could just be, you know, you, you could just go to them and say, yes, we will fund this. We will make this happen. Let's, let's embrace these people. And so, you know, I think that to me is the next step is to start actually looking at these other organizations, whether it's unions or other groups, you know, community groups and stuff like that, who have these plans ready to bring out in our conversation that, you know, that will happen later, you know, um, with, uh, with Dylan Penner, he references all of these local green, um, green new deal plans that they've come up that, that have come out. And that's another thing. You could just go to these local, places and be like okay let we'll invest in your local green new deal you know green deal plans because that would you know because you know your local local area best and it's all of these plans that exist that we're just sort of ignoring right now because it doesn't fit the sort of neoliberal mindset that the that that this government seems to continually uh, be locked into and so I know that's where, that's it for me. If if you want me to convince me that you're doing something liberals and I'm sure you think that I'm the most important voter, uh, please start investing in these other ways. Please start investing in the unions that have these ideas. More and more places, you know, have these solutions. You know, there's a, a, there's a huge wealth of, you know, of indigenous leadership, uh, of plans that, that that different indigenous groups have laid out as well. You know, it exists all over the place. You just have to actually start investing in them and, and not just rely on, you know, just giving money to businesses and presuming they'll solve all our problems.
2: No, I agree on so many levels. Um, a dumb, a dumb, like idea that came to mind is like to kind of prove the point that like maybe just giving money to like a rando business or like a tech startup isn't necessarily the best way to go about it is, and I feel like I might've ranted about this on an earlier episode, but I live in Ottawa where, um, e-scooters have become a huge thing and they're the e-scooters that you like you sign up for via your phone and an app and I, I I can just picture a tech startup bro coming into like a city hall and being like have I got the active transit solution for you it's decentralized it's app based requires minimal staff blah 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 and it's like yeah and as a result it's, it's been a horribly implemented system people get hurt all the time they're taken in places they shouldn't be they block up the sidewalks making it really, really difficult for people with mobility issues like it's so anyway like that's an example of like a way in which like just endlessly pouring money into like anybody who screens tech in your face like isn't necessarily the best way to do it like yes going to Canada Post or the ATU or these people who already kind of do this work to a degree and have these great ideas about how to how to grow and expand. It's like, let's why don't we do it that way? Why don't we go through these trusted avenues and these people who have these systems and this knowledge already in place. But anyway, I was also gonna say, I'm also way easier to please than you because you want plans and you want money. All I want is them just to acknowledge that like, in order for us to actually make this transition, that we need to phase out fossil fuels. I was reading this really great piece in the National Observer today um, that was talking specifically um, what's what's the headline so people can read if they want to. Industry and climate groups face off over just transition consultation. And a bit of background there: it's because um, NRCan, uh, national like the National Resources. Ministry Ministry of Natural Resources um, has put out a national consultation on just transition on the Just Transition Act that is sort of like in their in their uh, their wheelhouse. It's their responsibility, um, and obviously they're getting lots of feedback. and And obviously, depending on who that feedback is coming from, they're they're getting mixed messages. And from the nonprofit environmental world, it's a call for fossil fuel phase out, and from the caps of the world uh and the um oil producers it's it's calling for just transition in order to continue burning fossil fuels so basically at the end of the day all i want is an acknowledgement from the government that just transition means transitioning away from fossil fuels and that means a fossil fuel phase out a managed decline nobody is saying of course that we want to halt all the pipelines tomorrow and blah, 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 blah. But like, we do need to sunset this industry that is already sunsetting. Um, So you want plans. All I, you can just throw empty words at me. Just give me the words, please. Just give me a verbal acknowledgement of the reality of the situation.
1: All right. Well, the ball is now in your court, Justin Trudeau. Uh, Will you pander to either of us? We'll find out. And the crown bursts forth and the true balance of infinite wellness, the true balance of infinite intelligence, and we become the infinite intelligence itself. We become the infinite intelligence in form. We become the infinite intelligence in reality. There is no separation. There is only infinite intelligence. There is only us. We are the one infinite creator in form.
0: All right. So now we'll do some climate environmental news, some deep, deep industry analysis. So the Canadian federal government has stepped in to help Enbridge. Can you believe it? In its fight to keep Line 5 open against the wishes of the government of Michigan. Line 5, of course, runs through a narrow passage that connects Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. And the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, has been wanting to close the pipeline down because it's old and could spill and contaminate the Great Lakes if it's hit by an anchor or something, or just keeps decaying. The pipeline supplies half the fuel used in Ontario and Quebec, but oil demand has stagnated in Canada, and we now produce two and a half times as much oil as we consume. Nevertheless, Ottawa has invoked a treaty from 1977 to keep the pipeline operating. Our Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau said, quote, Line 5 is governed by the provisions of the 1977 agreement between the government of Canada and the government of the United States of America concerning transit pipelines, which guarantees the uninterrupted transit of light crude oil and natural gas liquids between the two countries. Today, Canada is formally invoking the dispute settlement provision of the 1977 agreement to ensure its full application. The Energy Mix uh, quotes Michelle Woodhouse of Environmental Defense as saying, quote, The pipeline runs through the heart of the largest freshwater body in the world. There is no number you can put on the value of the Great Lakes because we depend on them for every single aspect of our lives in this region. So keeping a deteriorating pipeline in operation is very unsettling. When they claim the sky is going to fall and we're going to have a domestic energy crisis if Line 5 shuts down, without also taking into account what's happening with production and consumption, you have to question whether it's about protecting the energy security of the region or protecting Enbridge's long-term portfolio for investors. Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline is now complete and has begun sending oil from Alberta to Wisconsin. Enbridge's executives are, of course, very proud of the work they have done with this essential resource and with the various indigenous nations living along the pipeline's route, even though the company paid police to assault and arrest hundreds of indigenous protesters and allies who were trying to stop construction. The indigenous environmental network said they will not stop fighting until all tar sands pipelines are shut down, and companies and governments respect indigenous communities' right to consent or denial. A new international analysis from S&P Global has determined that tar sands oil is the most carbon-intensive in the world. A major oil spill has happened in Southern California from a ruptured pipeline, possibly damaged by a ship's anchor, and has spilled up to 144,000 gallons of oil into the ocean, which is just about the capacity of the entire pipeline. The pipeline was found to have been pulled like a bowstring, 105 feet, and left with a 13-inch tear. Environmental lawyer Steve Donziger has been given the maximum sentence of six months in jail for refusing to turn over his computer and files to Chevron. In 2011, Donziger won a $9.5 billion settlement against Chevron on behalf of indigenous people in the Ecuadorian Amazon after Chevron contaminated the rainforest with oil. Chevron has been trying to destroy Donziger ever since, and managed to put him under house arrest for almost two years. Donziger maintains that the lawyers being employed by the U.S. state to prosecute him have connections with Chevron. And he's also pointing at politicians who've been silent on his case, like the Democratic House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler of New York. Donziger told The Intercept, quote, Jerry Nadler's silence reflects a sad lack of commitment to human rights protections in the United States of America. Worse, his son works at the same Chevron law firm that has reaped massive fees for attacking me and trying to ruin my life, which is in and of itself a gross human rights violation. Edward Helmore writes for The Guardian, A UN expert's opinion said that the U.S. breached international law by putting Dodziger under house arrest, for about four times the maximum sentence of six months that he has now received in his contempt case. Back in Canada, a Wet'suwet'en land offender was arrested three days before Canada's, before Canada's first reconciliation holiday last week. Another supporter was tasered there on the 25th as the Wet'suwet'en First Nation continues to stand up to Coastal Gas Link, which is constructing a liquid natural gas pipeline through their land. Dan Checkpoint spokesperson Slado said, On the day of truth and reconciliation, reconciliation is dead. The government, industry, and police are still invading our yinta. The authority of the Witsuitan hereditary house and clan system was verified in the historic Dalgamic and Red Top court decisions, but our hereditary system continues to be disrespected by B.C. and Canada. Coastal GasLink is trespassing on our Yinta with their plans for a 670-kilometer fracked gas pipeline. They're trying to drill under the Wedzinqua River, the sacred headwaters that feeds all of Wet'suwet'en territory and gives life to our nation. Slato also said, quote, The world is on the brink of climate catastrophe and all people must rise up to protect what little is left for future generations. We invite supporters to come to Kasiak territory and stand with us. We raise our hands to the brave people at Ferry Creek, who have just defeated Teal Cedar Product Limited's injunction. The RCMP are using the same violent tactics to intimidate and criminalize peaceful land defenders here. We're united in the struggle to defend our lands, our waters, and our homes. Coastal GasLink has recently been digging up historically significant sites that hold artifacts and proof of historical Wet'suwet'en habitation of that land. And mentioning Ferry Creek, down in Ferry Creek, activists fighting against old-growth logging are celebrating a B.C. Supreme Court decision not to extend the injunction against them. The judge ruled that RCMP officers have been too violent and are making the court look bad. The judge also noted that the RCMP were not letting press in, were hiding their identities, and were wearing thin blue-line badges. Over a 1,000 people have been arrested this year fighting old-growth logging in B.C., and now the police will not have a court order backing up their dismantling of the protest blockades. So they're currently not allowed to be arrested for blocking them. the roads. And the Gitanyahu First Nation in B.C. has decided to declare 54,000 hectares of land as under their official protection, rather than waiting for the province to do anything. They will be protecting land, water, and declining salmon from mining operations. And finally, Canada's second-largest pension fund is divesting from oil, but it will continue investing in natural gas. The fund manages $389 billion on behalf of people in Quebec, and they currently have around $4 billion invested in oil.
1: This Dongzinger case. The fact that Chevron has managed to so effectively ruin this guy's life, you know, he's been kept under house arrest for multiple years on a contempt of court charge, and the fact that they've managed to basically hound him for now, what, 10 years, because while still they lost the court case and are refusing to pay... You know the indigenous nation in Ecuador who they lost this case to. They owe, they still owe that 9.5 billion dollars. And so, the you know the other news this week that uh, from sort of global power structures has of course been the Pandora Papers, which was a yet another massive leak. I think this is the largest leak yet, even bigger than Pandora Papers from a few years ago, of ways in which the the richest people in the world hide their money in offshore wealth or avoid taxes what's being expo- exposed in these papers is not that these things are actually technically illegal the, cro- the 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 true atrocity here is that the people making these rules are the people who are in power like they're literally politicians like Tony Blair is in this one you know there's like these are politicians who make the loopholes which they then exploit to hide their money from people the estimation is that 600 billion dollars is lost to country to countries in taxes every year because of the ways that these mega rich people can not avoid being, being being held accountable and you know that's that to me is it, is the backdrop we have to see things like the Dongzinger case you know if you've offended the people who are rich enough they can just control your life in a way that will not you know, the, 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 for which you will have no recourse. They will use the law against you and they will hold you uh, accountable to laws that they will entirely ignore and not have to deal with. And it's that dichotomy that I think is part of this, you know, ever growing wealth inequality problem and part of this sort of ever growing feeling that, like, you know, those of us who are not the 0.1% are screwed. We have no real recourse in a, in a, and what is quickly becoming, I think, an oligarchy of of the of the incredible wealthy that can again make their own rules as they like, and then you know the reason why everyone talks about closing loopholes and then never does is in part because loopholes serve the people who are paying their bills.
2: Well, no, and like that's the thing. I'm sitting here asking myself the exact same question: How do you start to dig yourself out of this problem? Because like we were talking about really, really briefly before we started to record when the Paradise Papers, when the Panama Papers came out, like there were instances, um, I believe you said they were actually referenced in the Pandora Papers where people, where like firms were shut down, where people did get in trouble, where people maybe likely didn't go to prison, but like had to maybe lost a couple of those billions of dollars kind of thing. And, and, And obviously that's a good thing for those individuals to be held accountable to some degree, but it's so piecemeal. And how do you possibly, like, I almost feel like, I'm at a loss of sort of words. And like like you said, how do you dig yourself out of the situation when this is the third set of papers like this to come out? We know this is happening. It's, it's not like this isn't an issue that the average person is aware of. At this point, I think. Like, I think this is something that at this point is almost common knowledge. Everybody knows that the uber wealthy use tax havens. Everybody knows that those uber wealthy using those tax havens are the same people who are writing tax law and the same people who are like supposed to be holding each other accountable as like the oligarchic class. I don't know how we're supposed to either like break through to each other about like the need for, well, I think everybody knows that you need to change, but yeah. How do you, how do you possibly enact it? It's like, how do we bust ourselves out of this paradigm that we've gotten into where we just sort of accept this is the reality of the world. And I guess that's, like I said, probably something people have had to deal with for centuries in some form or of another or another, but I don't know when, when, it's combined with a climate crisis and an ecological crisis. And it's it's the same perpetrators of both evils. It's like, I don't know, this feels pretty pressing in a way that maybe it didn't. Unfortunately, I can't come up with anything more intelligent to say on it than that. Um, so what I, what I will do is I'll pivot really quick, because I know we are running out of time. Just to talk really briefly about Embridge line three, um, because like Dave said, actually, I'm literally quoting from Dave's notes here. It's now complete and it's begun sending oil from Alberta to Wisconsin. And something that I, it's, it's one of my dumber takes, and I think maybe it's even one that I've mentioned before on the show. Um, I have never quite been able to understand why it is that we care as a movement so much about TMX. And so little about line three. And I was looking at it like specifically barrels of barrels of oil a day. If TMX were to be like completely up and running with the double pipelines, it would be um, about 890,000 barrels of oil a day. The line three pipeline is 760,000 barrels of oil a day, like almost the same. I understand 100,000 barrels is 100,000 barrels, but it's still only 100,000 barrels. So it's like, why is it that we have been able to muster so much energy and so much time and so many resources and so much passion behind halting Trans Mountain, behind halting um, Northern Gateway, behind halting Energy East? And yet when it comes to line three and line five, they've slipped under the radar completely. And I and don't quite understand why that is the case maybe other than the fact that like they don't have very sexy names and they don't have very scary names and it's like ooh energy east ooh keystone xl but line three it's like eh, it's just another it's just another infrastructure thing right like it's i yeah this one just it's and i and when i say slid under the radar that's not to brush over the fact that there are people who have been extremely dedicated working on this issue for years now i know there there was a for the longest time, it was a really, really big deal that um, Indigenous land defenders and um, settler organizers and activists in Ontario had been arrested around line three. Like, it's it's not, not to say that people haven't been working on these issues. I know they have. But like, where is that groundswell campaign? Where is the hashtag? Where are the endless number of articles in like the Globe and Mail and the CBC about these pipelines? And I would just like somebody maybe with a little more perspective to answer that question for me. Be these
0: ones slide by. The company has been able to frame it as a replacement. So they're like, even though mm-hmm. it's a new route, they're rerouting it a little bit and it's going to be a m- larger capacity. <laughs> right. They're sort of like, this is a replacement, the, the pipeline.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's a point. Whereas TMX was always labeled as a twinning, it was always labeled yeah. as an expansion and not just a replacement.
1: I, I think what we need to start doing is branding every one of these uh, pipelines like they did the COVID vaccines. You know, like I want to call this, I want to call it line five spike pipe or something, you know, because I feel like it's way easier to galvanize some sort of energy against that.
2: Well, and you know why I don't think we're totally off base here? Because I remember like there was that study that came out a couple of years ago that talked about how hurricanes with female names are taken less seriously than hurricanes with male names. So they realized like they needed to start giving them scary names in order for people to take them seriously because like Hurricane Lucy sounds super cute, but Hurricane Lucifer is like ooh, spooky scary a big deal so like maybe that's the thing maybe we just need to always brand our pipelines with scary names to galvanize people behind yeah. them not behind them in front of them in their way
1: yeah the to 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 move on to to line five because um I think it's it goes back a little bit to, to what we we're talking about at the beginning which is about sort of the way that how how power I guess in some ways obfuscates um and makes seemingly normal what should be at its fa- at its most direct face um, awful and bad things. The fact that the F- Canadian federal government, which let's 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 be real here, is not known for its greatness in honoring treaties. I think that should be a relatively accepted fact.
2: Well, what about TRC Day? All those orange T-shirts, Stefan. Come on. Yeah.
1: Well let's all move to Tofino and then we can then we can really do this. But like, yeah, we have a history of completely ignoring every treaty. The Canadian government has been sued time and time again and has lost many time and time and time again. Treaty after treaty with indigenous peoples get ignored and then the suddenly it, it, in the so that they can create pipelines and the moment that a pipeline might be at risk of being shut down because it seemingly no one is questioning whether or not it's very dangerous that's part of the weirdness here right like no one is coming out and being like actually no it's safe they're just saying it's very important so they don't care and, and like our quote unquote you know ally to the south is like shut this thing down and we are basically being like no and it's, to me, it's like the number of times Canada will back down against the states in almost every issue, almost all of the time. And yet now the Canadian state suddenly cares up deeply about treaties and that, that's the one we're going to hold uh, hold and, and and come back at the United States with.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, but again, it's so hard to just not respond to everything we've said and everything we've learned about and talked about today with just like, I don't know, jaded cynicism, because it's like, well, I mean, of course, the ruling class manipulate this already broken, never working justice system in their favor. And it's like, yeah, but just because that's the way it's always been doesn't mean that's the way it should be. But like, how do we possibly bust ourselves out of this mindset where we can like, where where we can dream of other possibilities and make them actually and, and, and work together to make them happen? It's so hard. It's not only working against like, like um, a mountain of resources fighting to keep the status quo in place it's also like working against working over those mental blocks and over those creative blocks as well and it's not like those ideas and that creativity doesn't exist but it's just like it's hard to wake up and foster it every single day when every single day it's just like the proof of the impenetrable wall that protects the status quo is just being thrown in your face it's like really
1: I am here very excitedly with Dylan Penner, the Climate and Social Justice Campaigner of Council of Canadians to talk about their next week, October, starting, I believe, October 12th, is the Climate Code Red Week of Action. Thank you so much for joining us, Dylan. That's right. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So just briefly for people who may not be aware of you know, the Council of Canadians work, can you tell us a little about what you do, what's the history of the organization, and you know, what's your mandate?
3: Sure. So the, the Council of Canadians has been around since the, the mid 80s. It formed in opposition to neoliberalism and various free trade agreements uh, at the time, including the FTA uh, with the, the free trade agreement with the U.S. and, and NAFTA subsequently. And and since then has continued to to work on a variety of issues of, of social justice and really focusing on challenging corporate power and influence, protecting the commons and and working for social, economic and, and environmental justice. And and in relation to the upcoming uh, week of action, that includes climate justice.
1: Amazing. Yeah, we've had some chats uh, previously with some council community folks out on the East Coast. You're a new guest, so welcome. And you mentioned this call really focuses on climate action and specifically a demand for a just transition. And so I'm curious if you can expand on what a just transition looks like, according to to the Canadians. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and there, there are a variety of, of uh, perspectives on that legitimately. And, and that's why we're focusing on community-led and worker-led and Indigenous-led uh, a focus of what a, a just transition should look like. And we're really at a, a key political moment where, it, as, as folks know, we've had serious climate chaos th- this year and increasingly every year with the wildfires this year. And we're now at a moment where we're three years in from the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes uh, report that came out in October 2018, de- declaring a climate emergency. And we saw the the effect that had on on sparking the massive student climate strikes as well as green new deal organizing around the world and we're now just a couple months past the more recent more more disturbing report from the intergovernmental panel on climate change where it was uh, it was declared a, a code red for humanity uh, and and time is running out to keep our uh, emissions low enough to avoid warming beyond uh, 1.5 degrees celsius around the world and and so that's also happening in a context where the government of Justin Trudeau has promised just transition legislation. They promised it back in 2019. We've yet to see it, although there has been a consultation process that was launched, we still don't know what the government is thinking in terms of what would actually be in, in there. And so that's why it's incredibly important that the, that, that workers and indigenous peoples and uh, racialized peoples and, and communities have a voice and take act and build power so that it's people in communities that are defining what a just transition is and, and not leaving it to to big oil executives and, and corporations which have been recently flooding that just transition consultation so we're really up against corporate power here versus people in communities in terms of defining what a just transition looks like
1: cool and so maybe we can dive into a little bit about what it really looks like to begin that pressure? What are you asking uh, folks to do in this week of action?
3: Yeah. So at the Council of Canadians, we're working with the grassroots and and national groups from coast to coast on building pressure and building people power in in communities in a few different ways. One of those approaches is what we call a, a just transition micro petition, where for an MP, a member of parliament to introduce a petition in the House of Commons, they only need a a minimum of 25 signatures to introduce to table that petition. And and so what we're launching with the Climate Code Red Week of Action and planning to continue in the coming months through the, the first 100 days of Parliament is launching waves of, of support for a just transition and aiming to flood parliament with that. So that it's basically applying pressure through getting members of parliament to to raise just transition and a, a view of what a just transition should look like from the perspective of people and communities and social movements. And also through that process, building power in communities by getting more people in, involved in, in the movement so that regardless of, of the outcome of the next the weeks and months that we're continuing to get more people involved in in organizing because that's really how we shift the balance of, of power is, is building a bigger movement.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious, you had mentioned that the consultation the liberal governments have started doing hmm. you know, is getting flooded and pushed by corporate power. That's I'm curious if you can dive into that a little bit. What was the process they began and how are you seeing that sort of be moved as it stands now, which is like leading to the, the need to be more proactive in, at this point.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's a good question. And, and it's, uh, it's challenging in, in a couple ways. So one is that the. Just Transition Consultation itself was launched after years of delay, just before the federal election. And so it was really obscured by the federal election it itself. And it's the kind of consultation where it's hard to say exactly how many people are contributing to that consultation and who, and and is it actually uh, representative of the, the people and communities who are most uh, impacted by the climate crisis and the necessary transition and the added to that the fact that the the canadian association of petroleum producers the biggest lobbying group of corporate oil and gas executives in in the country is trying to marshal people to to flood that with the kind of the support for the just transition so-called that would be more about bailing out big oil yet again and and boosting profits rather than actually protecting workers and, and communities. There, there are a lot of concerns uh, with that. So it just raises again, the importance of, of people and communities, taking action so that we're ap- applying enough pressure to the government so that whatever comes forward with just transition legislation actually reflects the the needs and demands of people and communities and and not big oil executives.
1: Cool. And so the. The next three questions are all intertwined, but mm-hmm. I'll sort of parse them out one by one. Obviously, you've chosen a set of tactics to really pressure and put front and center individual MPs who are just rejoining, some maybe new, I guess, there's a few mm-hmm. new, but largely probably it's the same folks are coming back after, after the election. But a new session does bring new energy. And you're very much focused on pressuring the government officials, people in Ottawa right now. And so I'm curious, what led you to settle on these tactics?
3: It's a good question. And so this week of action has, has arisen from a couple of years of work that we've been doing with a, a network of grassroots and community organizations from coast to coast that are are working on building just transitions and, and green new deals uh, from the ground up. And in in many cases, they're working on municipal green new deals and, and doing that kind of organizing. And it emerged from that as a, a way for more groups to work together on this at a federal level in parallel to the great local work that's been happening. And it was also born out of the the political moment that this just transition legislation is around the corner and communities uh, really need to have a role in defining what that is because what a just transition looks like federally is going to look a little bit different and it's going to need to look a little bit different than it would look in, in Fort McMurray or Toronto or Halifax or rural North, Nova Scotia or Quebec. And so it really underscores the, the need for communities to have a role in defining what a just transition looks like for them and the needs for folks from coast to coast to work together to make that happen. So that's essentially where it arose from.
1: Yeah, that, that makes of sense. And so with that set of tactics, obviously uh, the timing of this also ends up being important, A, because of the name of it is related to BCC, mm-hmm. but then also the time of the return of these MPs into Ottawa. And so you talk a little bit more about why you feel right now is such a particular critical time to act.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do have an opportunity. While the seat counts in Parliament might not have uh, changed that much, that because of the recent federal election, that doesn't mean that the the dynamics are going to be exactly uh, the same as, as they they were, and we we have a, a government that was seeking a majority and didn't get one, and that creates some new opportunities for our movements to to really apply some different kinds of pressure to to win on big issues like a just transition and, and like a green new deal in, in a way that's going to reflect what movements have been demanding for years. And and it's also important to underscore that this, in addition to taking place in the lead up to the next session of parliament, the quote, Climate Code Red Week of Action is also taking place just weeks before the next uh, UN climate talks that are beginning uh, at the end of October. And so it really is a key political moment for all of us to work more together to build a bigger movement, to really uh, shift things. Because as we've heard from scientists around the world and and from Indigenous knowledge, time is running out. We, we have Uh, a very short period of time to, to drastically reduce emissions in a, in a just way for workers and impacted communities. And we don't have a moment to spare.
1: So the third uh, of these sort of three, which are all leading into one another is a little more, I'm going to, I'm going to frame it the most hopeful way I can, because I haven't been the most, chipper in the past few episodes in regards to our hopes and dreams of these things. And so I'm going to move this in the more positive direction, which is when we think about winning on this campaign or, or on this work, A, what do you think it will take to win? And then B, what does that look like? What does the the federal government really taking this seriously entail?
3: Yeah, and that's totally fair that the the climate crisis and, and the intertwining crises that, that are connected to it. it, it is not the best fuel for chipperness, but there there are a lot of sources of hope. We published a few months back uh, a piece of, of research about how local green new deals are, are gaining steam in, in Canada and, and the U.S. and, and the U.K. and they are actually now across Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. 15 communities with a combined population of over 31 million people that have begun implementing local green new deals with just transitions at the core, and and so. That just highlights the, the potential for, for organizing, for, for building people power of climate justice and a just transition from the ground up. And, and whatever the outcome of the focus on, on federal just transition legislation, we need to, to continue organizing in, in our communities to, to win and, and build those kinds of changes, which will, in addition, add, add even more uh, upward pressure on, on provincial and federal governments to, to do the right thing when it comes to climate justice and, and a just transition and uh, potentially federal Green New Deal uh, as well.
1: Awesome. So now folks have heard generally what you're working on and also the ways in which this is obviously important. And obviously I imagine most people listening to the show are well supportive of the concept of taking seriously strong action on a just transition. And perhaps we can expand a little bit on how folks can get involved in your work, both from the standpoint of this particular campaign, like how can folks start, be involved in this week of action that begins next week? And then also going forward, how can they stay up to date with your work? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
3: we have on the Council of Canadians, a website at canadians.org slash Green New Deal, a variety of tools for people to use to organize in, in their communities. So the, the key parts are the petition itself, and there's an organizing toolkit that, that goes with it so that folks can use it with their local organizing group if they have one, or they can use it to Get one started if they don't and and it's relatively straightforward and that's part of the beauty of of this kind of approach is is that it's not that hard to get 25 signatures you can talk with family and friends and take it around to people in your workplace it's relatively straightforward and it's a tool to build the capacity of engaging other people who aren't currently organizing with you on the issue that you can follow up with to, to come with you to the MP's office to deliver the petition and, and participate in, in other upcoming climate justice, just transition actions. And so folks can uh, visit canadians.org slash Green New Deal to get the the toolkit and, and the petition, as well as see a, a list of climate champions in Parliament. One of the, the benefits as well of this approach is that for a parliamentary petition, you can deliver it to your local MP, but you don't necessarily need to. There's uh, different levels of receptivity, depending on (laughs) who your local MP is when it comes to issues of of climate justice and the way parliamentary petitions work. You can actually ask any MP in the country, regardless of where you are, to introduce it in in the House of Commons. You you can certainly ask your local MP, but, but you don't have to. And, and there are ways that folks can help amplify the week of action on social media as well and in addition to the week of action a, a key part of it is we're using the week of action to to launch this this approach to flood parliament with waves of support for a, a just transition and and the plan is for that to continue over the next few months so through t- through to the end of the, the first hundred days of parliament so whether or not people can participate in the week of action itself, or whether or not it's possible to actually set up a a meeting with your MP or the MP you're approaching in that timeframe, which is understandable given it's not that far away now. There, there's still the possibility of, of participating in the coming months. And, and just in general with our uh, Green New Deal work and climate justice work and just transition work at, at the council of, uh, Canadians folks can sign up at, at the the webpage as well at canadians.org slash Green New Deal to, to get involved in general in an ongoing way.
1: Amazing. So. It is our tradition to give our uh, interviewees a, a, a last word at the end of the show, and it can be either something that maybe you want to mention about this particular campaign or just a message that you want to give to you know our audience of climate-involved folks across Canada. But uh, before I do, just thank you again so much, Dylan Penner, the climate and social justice campaigner of Canceled Canadians. This is the Climate Code Red Week of Action, which starts next week, October 12th. And so get involved then if you can, but yeah, Dylan, last word, however you like it and however long you like, take it away.
3: (laughs) Well, firstly, thanks again uh, so much for, for having me on. I've been, been following the, the show on, on Twitter for a while now. So great to be here and I really. One of the, the key things I, I think that we, we have in, in front of us to address is that we are in a situation in, in the world and here in this land called Canada that we need serious transformative change. We're facing a climate crisis, but it's intertwined with crises of of, uh, of white supremacy and inequality. And we, we saw recently with the, the Pandora Papers, so yet again, the revelations of of just how much wealth the, the billionaires of the, the world are, are hoarding and climate action and fighting for fairness for workers and, and, and fighting inequality and fighting racism and fighting colonialism and fighting for disability justice. These and many more struggles go hand in hand. And so that's why we need just transition legislation that, that legislates fair share emissions reductions in Canada and beyond. Protects and strengthens workers' rights and indigenous rights and human rights and ensures migrant migrant justice, expands the social safety net and reduces growing inequality, creates new economic institutions to implement the transition and creates good green jobs and and drives in- inclusive uh, workforce development and and fundamentally we need we need system change. The system we have got us into this problem and it's not going to solve the problem and and that's why uh, we need people organizing in in communities from coast to coast and, and around the world, because that's how we change it and that's how we win.